Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's open in prayer. Lord God, we come in from uh, the cold. We come in from the chaos of the world. And we come to worship you, to enjoy you, and to find peace in you. And so God, pray you'd be faithful to give us that this day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've shared with you before, uh, I have previously been involved with a ministry called Young Life and throughout college and after college. And one of the facets of the Young Life ministry is we have this weekly thing called club where a bunch of teenage kids get together and we get kind of crazy and we have a lot of fun and there's a message at the end. Um, The way that we describe this club to outsiders, to people who aren't familiar with it, is we say it is basically controlled chaos, okay? And the reason why we call call it controlled chaos um, is because from those who are coming from the outside, when they come in to a club, they would say, this is absolute chaos because they would probably see, you know, a teenage kid duct taped to the wall or drinking Coke through his own sock or drinking Coke through someone else's sock. And so it looks like absolute chaos to the outsider. But to the insider, to the leaders, this is all a part of our plan, Right? This is why we want things to go. We want it to be fun. We want it to be crazy. And it is a controlled environment. And so it is controlled chaos. We live in a world full of chaos. We, we swim in chaos. I mean, I mean at, at, at our homes, there is there's screaming and there is crying. There is sickness. There is death. At our workplaces, there are people being fired, people quitting, people gossiping, people maneuvering for a better position. In our schools, there are people being bullied, there's cheating, there's just all sorts of brokenness. I mean, if you look at our nation, there's, there's impeachments, there's, there's name calling. It's, it's just chaos everywhere we go. I mean, I'm curious if we have a few honest people in the church this morning. Anyone have chaos on the car right here? Anybody? I mean, I know for me, like when we're driving to church as a family, it's like, didn't I tell you not to wear those shoes? Why are you wearing shorts? Aren't you supposed to be wearing pants? Hey, why don't you comb your hair? Like, everyone be quiet. Prepare your hearts to worship Jesus, right? It's chaos. Now, I found the solution to that, which is I drive to church separately. But if I drive with my family, it's chaos. It's chaos. Chaos is the air that we breathe. And I don't know about you, but I get more and more uncomfortable with chaos as I get older. I mean, I I was laughing about this. I went to a Packer game. When the Packers score a touchdown, they flash the lights now. Maybe you see on TV. I'm like, I don't like this. It's too chaotic, right? Like chaos, it just feels scary. It feels unsafe. It feels unfamiliar. And yet the reality is... We live in chaos. 
I mean, I had so many people after church this morning, first service, just tell me about the chaos in their own life. Chaos is the air that we breathe. Would you believe me if I told you that it is a controlled chaos? It's what Daniel chapter 8 talks about. If you would, please open up to Daniel chapter 8. Um, if you do not own a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, please take it as a gift from us. It's page 743 in the Red Bible. Um, I don't know if you've ever read a chapter of the Bible before and you get to the end of it and you go, okay, I have no idea what that meant. Um, but that's basically Daniel chapter 8. Uh, some preachers will skip over Daniel chapter 8. Some commentaries will. Uh, maybe you will hope by the end of this that I skipped over Daniel chapter 8. Uh, but we know that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. And to be honest with you, I would not want to skip Daniel chapter 8 because Daniel chapter 8 is a reminder that in the chaos of this world, God is still in control. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, there are two main sections. Uh, the first main part of the section is a vision that Daniel has, okay? Um, and then the second part is an explanation of that vision. And to be honest with you, it's, it's fairly confusing at times, and we'll work through it together. Um, but if you're not normally a note taker, you might want to take notes today because it might help you keep track of everything that's going on there. But we want to look at this vision and understand what, what Daniel saw and what Daniel experienced and even how it applies to our own life. And so that's my hope. So, so first we're going to look at the vision, the vision of controlled chaos. And together I want to see that vision of controlled chaos. Today we have lots of pictures for you, at least in the first part, so that we can kind of visualize uh, what Daniel was seeing, okay? So let's start with verses 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that, which appeared to me at first, I think he somewhat the vision in chapter 7. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Uli Canal. So we have a map up here for you just to give you kind of an understanding of what's going on. If you remember, Daniel was born in Judah in the area of Jerusalem. He was exiled uh, as a teenager over to Babylon by the Babylonian Empire, and he dwelt in Babylon. He lived in Babylon. He ended up dying in Babylon as well. And he's having a vision that he is in Susa, which is right over here. It says in the citadel, and citadel basically just means a building with high walls, something that is fortified. Uh, if you go to the next picture, you'll see this is a picture of modern day Susa and maybe the canal that he was at, maybe something he envisioned, but just try to, try to, trying to give you a little bit of a picture of the experience that Daniel is going through. So uh, verse three and four, he says, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So last night I was up all night drawing this picture for you of a ram. And uh, as you'll see, he has a smaller horn and a longer horn here. And as we go through this vision, there are going to be basically two animals. There's a ram and there's a goat, okay, which we'll get to in a little bit. But as we consider these, these visions, these, these images, the, 
The animals represent empires, okay? Human empires, and we'll tell you which ones as we move along. The horns, uh, for the most part, represent the kings of those empires. So, so the ram would be an empire, and each horn would be a king. And we'll get to what exactly that means here in a little bit. Verse 5, we get introduced to the second animal, the goat. So it says, I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, meaning it was very fast. And the goat had a conspicuous or noticeable horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and, the, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And so here again is another image of maybe something that Daniel was picturing uh, when he had this vision. Verse 7, I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it came up four conspicuous, again, that means noticeable horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. So if you look up here, and this is, if you could keep this picture in your mind, I was going to put it in the bulletin because, but ran out of space. But you'll see here, this is where the one main horn was that is broken off uh, when, the, when the goat is great and large and up grows these four horns. And out of this one horn comes a, I'll call it a sub horn. I'm not sure what else to call it, but you have this sub horn and this sub horn takes up a significant part of this chapter. And so I can, kind of want you to, Keep that image in your mind as we keep going through this. Verse 10, talking about the subhorn, it says, It grew great even to the hosts of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, the stars is referring to the people of God. If you remember, God promises to Abraham, he'll make his descendants like the stars of heaven, as numerous as the stars of heaven. It says, It threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will, will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So this is, this is the vision that we're going to cover so far. And, and if it's confusing to you, that's okay, because it's also confusing to Daniel. And so God sends a messenger to explain this to Daniel. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. 
He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, I know when we read in the Bible where it talks about the end, we're often programmed to think the end of time when Jesus returns. But in this particular passage, it seems fairly basic that it's not talking about that, but the end of the indignation, meaning that the end of the time where God is disciplining his people through exile and then God bringing his judgment upon the people who have been harsh to God's people while they were in exile. And so this is the time frame that this is talking about. And it's important for us to understand that when Daniel has this vision, it's a prophecy about how the history of the ancient Near East is going to unfold over the next 400 years. Okay? So it was future for Daniel and the people of God at that time. But for us, it's past. It's something that's already been fulfilled. And so Daniel is, Daniel is looking forward to this with a lot of questions, not quite understanding. And we're looking back at this and we're able to see a lot of the ways that this is fulfilled. And it even gives some names in this passage to tell us how this, uh, this was fulfilled. And the first, thing that, the first thing that is explained in this passage is the ram. Okay, verse 20. It says, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Uh, it's interesting, Pastor Jonathan preached in, in Daniel 7 last week, and there doesn't give descriptions of what the different things in the vision means, but here it does. And it tells us that the ram symbolizes the empire of the Medo-Persians. And the large horn is King Cyrus of the Persians. The small horn is the king of the Medes. And King Cyrus, the large horn, actually brought the Medes under his control in 550 BC. And so that's what it is representing. Now, if you remember back in verse 4, which you probably don't, that's okay. But back in verse 4, we learned that the ram... Uh, uh, that no one could stand before the ram. No one could rescue uh, from the power of the ram. And he did as he pleased. Um, indeed, the Medo-Persian empire was uh, large and powerful. It was the, the largest empire uh, in the ancient Near East in the history of the world. And so it was this large, huge empire. But then comes the goat, okay? Verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece. Uh, not only is it the king of Greece, it's the, the Greek empire, as we'll see as it unfolds. Um, and, then, and, then, and then if you remember, we saw that picture with the different horns on the goat, and the horns represent different kings. And so we're going to walk through that quickly because Daniel does. So here we go. Um, verse 21 says, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now we know from verse 5 that this first king came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Again, meaning it came very quickly. And this goat with this one major horn, this one major king, cast down the Babylonian Medo-Persian, sorry, the Medo-Persian empire, uh, which was the ram, okay? And so what's so amazing about this is this very accurate description um, of Alexander the Great. 
Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire in the span of about five years, which is very amazing. Um, he, was, he was actually made king uh, of the Greek Empire when he was 20 years old. I think I was working at Applebee's when I was 20 years old, and he was made king of the Greek Empire. Uh, and he went on again to conquer the Medo-Persian Empire and then extend the borders. He actually died at a very young age. He died at the age of 32, but he was an amazing military mind who conquered lots of property. It's actually kind of ironic uh, if you think about it that, that the animal used to symbolize him is the goat because in many ways he was the greatest of all time when it comes to military leadership. And so he conquered, he conquered much of the known world. And I don't know if you've ever heard the story. I don't know if it's true, but, but after he conquered vast amounts of land, he sat down and cried because he had no place else to conquer. Uh, and so this is the prophecy of that large horn that comes in, that single horn that tears down the Medo-Persian empire. Then we have, if you remember, that horn is broken off because Alexander, although he's great, even though he might be the goat, uh, he is also human and he dies and he is replaced. And so then we get to the goat's four horns. Verse 22, it says, as for the horn that was broken, Alexander the Great, in place of which Four others arose. Four kingdoms shall rise from this nation, but not with his power. After Alexander the Great died, uh, his two sons took the kingdom over, but they did not last very long. It didn't go well. And so four of his generals took over the kingdom and divided it into four parts, which is represented by these four horns. Now, if you remember again, one of these horns has a subhorn. And this subhorn takes up uh, more of this passage than any other of the horns in here. And it's because this subhorn, this king that is being prophesied about, is a horrifically important king in the story of God's people. Okay, so this is the subhorn. And I actually want to back up to the vision because it gives more details in the vision of this subhorn than it does in the explanation. So look with me again at verse 9 through 11. It says, out of one of them came a little horn. Uh, scholars almost unanimously agree that this little horn is a, is a king named Antiochus IV, who ruled for nine years, um, from 175 to 164 BC, about 400 years after the vision in Daniel chapter 8. It says, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. That's codenamed for the promised land, especially Judah and Jerusalem, as we will see. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven and some of the hosts and some of the stars, some of the people of God, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Verse 11, it, talking about the horn, Antiochus IV, who would trample God's people, became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. That is, at least in his own mind. You see, Antiochus IV became Antiochus Epiphanes. And Epiphanes means God manifest. He designated himself this. He actually printed up coins with his picture on it. I should have got that picture for you. But, and on it says Antiochus Epiphanes. And so that he could tell all of the world that he was like God. Okay, and, and not just, not the Lord God, Zeus God, one of the Greek gods, but that he was like a God. 
All right, verse 11 continues. It says, And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Antiochus IV was an absolutely brutal dictator towards God's people. In 170 BC, he killed Onias III, who was the high priest at that time. He went on to execute thousands of Jews. This was like an ancient holocaust going on. He stopped their temple observances. He destroyed ancient copies of the Hebrew scriptures. He banned circumcision. He ended sacrifices in the temple. And if that were not enough, he deliberately took a pig, which if you know in Jewish culture, that is an unclean animal. He took a pig into the temple, and not only into the temple, but into the holy place, not only to the holy place, but into the holy of holies, the most holy place in the temple. And he put that pig up on the altar and he slaughtered it to his God, Zeus. Antiochus IV was a brutal and horrendous enemy of God. Now, as we skip down to verse 23, we see the explanation, which is not quite as detailed as the vision itself. But it says this in verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, talking about Antiochus IV, the subhorn, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not his own power. He actually murders a relative to take on that kingship. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. Let's stop there. As we dive into this vision and to this explanation, there's a lot we can take away from it, but there's two things that I think are really important for us to see. And the first is this, is that the prophetic, now historical precision of Daniel 8 is completely unbelievable if you don't believe in God. Matter of fact, liberal scholars will say Daniel was written uh, in 100 BC after all these things have happened because it is unbelievable how precise this is unless you believe in God. In verse 1, we're told that this prophecy or this vision is given in, in the third year of King Belshazzar, which is around 548 BC. Uh, the Medo-Persians don't come and conquer the Babylonians for another nine years. Alexander the Great doesn't come for another 200 years. And Antiochus IV doesn't come for another 400 years. And yet Daniel chapter 8's prophecies are given in such detail, in such precision, that it is unmistakable that only God would know these things and only God could make these things happen and only God could share these things with his people. Daniel 8 should reinforce our confidence, not only in the Holy Scriptures, but also in the reality of a God. Because this precision is only possible if God is real. If God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful to make these things happen. God is in control in the midst of a chaotic world. 
The second thing in this passage, and, and I think it's so hard to swallow, but the controlled chaos of God's sovereign plan includes the suffering of God's people. You know, this, is, this isn't something for just back then. God, God actually gives us this same promise, if you want to call it, today. God tells us that we will suffer, that we will have tribulations. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I don't need to be a prophet. I don't need to have a vision to tell you that in this world you will suffer. Uh, Everybody suffers because we live in a fallen world, but as a Christian, as someone who belongs to the Lord God, you will suffer even more because there will be suffering directed towards you if you faithfully follow Christ. And so we should not be surprised when we suffer because suffering is a part of this chaotic and yet controlled plan of God. You know, I've shared this before, but I've, I've sat with so many of you who have shared about suffering you have gone through. And you will say, I, I never want to go through that again. But you'll say, you know, what? I would not trade it for the world, what God had done in me in that moment of my life, in which God had drawn me closer to, my, to himself, in which God had refined me and made me more like Jesus. Throughout the history of the world, God is continually warning his people that they will suffer. And God brings suffering in ways that may confuse us. But we can endure knowing that even in the midst of suffering, God has not abandoned us. God is still in control. And God's plan of redemption will not fail. And that's what comes next. Not only do we have a controlled chaos that he's talking about, a sad controlled chaos, but that's not the end of the story. We also see that God has victory over controlled chaos. Let's back up to verse 11. It says, It, talking about the horn Antiochus IV, became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offerings, because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. That's the bad news. But now the good news. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long? Have you ever asked that question of God <laughs> when you're going through suffering? Lord, how long? For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgressions that make desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. 
It mentions 2,300 mornings and evenings, which could be 2,300 days, which is over six years. Or it could be 2,300 mornings and evenings, which is half of that, which would not be over six years, but just a little over three years. I tend to believe it's the second because that is about the, the amount of time that the, that the sanctuary was out of commission, the temple was out of commission before it was rededicated. Either way, what we know is that the time frame is under God's control. You know, the book of Maccabees is not a biblical account, um, but it does give us some historical information that is very helpful when we're looking at this passage. Like, for example, how awful Antiochus IV was. It also tells us about what happened as a result of Antiochus IV. And you may know this from some of your history books, but there was something called the Maccabean Revolt. And through the Maccabean Revolt, these Jews raised up to fight against Maccabeus. And through that fight, they regained control of the temple and then they purified the temple by tearing down the altar that the pig was sacrificed on and erecting a new one and rededicating the temple. It happened on December 14th, 165 BC. And it was such a momentous occasion in the history of God's people that it actually spurred on a celebration. Anybody know what that is by chance? Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a celebration that God was faithful to his promise to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 and restored the temple over 400 years later in 165 BC. And so as we look at this, what we see is just the precision of Daniel's prophecy, his vision, but also the coming victory of the Lord. Verse 25 continues and says, And he, Antiochus IV, shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. You know, even though the Maccabean uh, revolt was very successful, it was not the means by which Antiochus IV died. He died through mysterious things, through, through some sort of sickness. We would say he died by the hand of God, but not by the hand of men, just like Daniel prophesied here in the vision. Verse 26 says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. It is certain. It is unchangeable. It is going to happen. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Verse 26 is trying to hammer home to the people of God who are in the chaos of exile that everything that is prophesied in this vision is going to happen. And the reason why it is convincing the people that this is going to happen because as they walk through this journey over hundreds of years, and there will be some high times and there will be some low times, but as they go through this journey, they will be tempted to think in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the persecution, they will be tempted to think that God is not in control. Can you relate to them? I forget God is in control all the time. Friday morning, Sitting at my counter, eating breakfast, water starts coming to the ceiling. I'm not thinking God is in control. I'm thinking I got a lot of work to do today. God is reminding them that he is in control and that he will win the day. Evil may persist for a time, but God will win the day. And because God will win the day, you can be faithful in the midst of chaos, in the midst of suffering. Because you know in the end, God will win and you belong to God. I don't know if, uh, 
you've heard of the Iditarod. I'm guessing most of you had. It's, it's, it's a, you know, a, a race with dogs, sled dogs up in Alaska. And the origins of it come back from 1925 when uh, there was uh, a small town, Nome, Alaska, uh, that's kind of secluded, and there was an outbreak of diphtheria there. And they had no way of getting the, the serum that would cure it uh, to Nome, Alaska, because the harbor was all iced over, um, and planes couldn't, couldn't, couldn't fly because it was so cold. Um, and the train, the train, the nearest the train came was hundreds of miles away. And so this town was in peril of completely dying off. And so the governor uh, of, of Alaska brought together um, some of the best drivers and dog teams in the state. And on January 27th, 1925, they, they took a 20-pound package that had been uh, sent by train from Anchorage, Alaska to another small town. Um, and they did a 674-mile race to bring this serum to this small little town so that these people could be saved. And because of that, the men who helped bring that serum there and the dogs that brought the serum there, they, they endured severe suffering. Uh, many of them were very severely frostbitten, but they endured it because they knew that there was going to be a win at the end of their trail. They knew that at the end there was going to be a victory, that the people were going to be rescued, that the people were going to be saved. Even the people in Nome, Alaska were able to have courage and endurance during this time because they know that victory was on the way and all they had to do was endure until that time. See, Daniel 8 was given to the people of God of Daniel's day so that they could endure the suffering knowing that God's victory was coming. Now, what about us? Why is Daniel 8 so important for us? In some ways, it's for the exact same reason. You know, we have talked about throughout the book of Daniel how like Daniel and the people of God at that time, we are exiles in this world. That heaven is our home. This is not our home. And that in this world, we will suffer. God promises. You will have tribulation. It's going to happen. And then God gives promises. Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. It's going to happen. In Revelations chapter 21, which I probably quote more than any other passage in the Bible, we read this. It says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. This is a promise. And the sea, which is chaos, is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he says this, which sounds so much like verse 26 in Daniel 8. It says, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is an amazing promise from God, that there is coming a day where he will restore all the broken things in the world. There will be no more weeping. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more suffering. Everything will be holy and happy again. This is a crazy promise. How can we be confident that it is true? 
Because Daniel chapter 8 was true. Because all the promises God gave in that apocalyptic literature in Daniel chapter 8 came true over the next 400 years. And so when we read the book of Revelation, which is also apocalyptic future, which is future for us, how can we know it comes true? Because God always fulfills his promises. God will be victorious. And we can rest in it knowing his resume, knowing his track record. God always fulfills his promises. Finally, our venture admits or in the middle of controlled chaos. A venture is something that you do. It's maybe a little unsettling, a little scary. Basically, what I'm trying to get at here is if we know that God is in control of all things, if he's in control of the chaos, if we know that God will win in the end, then how should we respond? Should we just sit back, eat, drink, and be numb because God has everything under control? It's not how Daniel responds. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. He was probably sick not only because he just had this psychedelic hallucination, but because he just saw hundreds of years of the suffering of God's people flash before his eyes. Then I rose and went about the king's business. I love it. It's just so matter of fact. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. When it says Daniel didn't understand the vision, I don't think it means Daniel didn't understand anything, but I think it's saying that much of it was was still unclear to him. He knew that it was predicting, prophesying, suffering in the future, that God was going to win. But who those people were going to be, who those empires were going to be, he didn't understand those things. But he knew that suffering was coming. He knew that victory was coming. And yet it says right here, how does he respond? I rose and went about the king's business. This week, I saw an interview with the quarterback of the 49ers. His name's Jimmy Garoppolo, and they are surprisingly undefeated this year. And when they were interviewing him, there was a phrase that kept coming up, a mantra. And it was a mantra that he had taken from his previous team, uh, which is also undefeated, which is the New England Patriots. And this mantra is just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's put on banners, it's put on flags, it's put on stickers, it's put on t-shirts. And the mantra that he stole from there, that he brought to the 49ers is very simple. The mantra is simply, do your job. Do your job, right? Do the job that you have been hired to do. And so the players would do the playing, the coaches would do the coaching, the front office would do the front officing or whatever they do, but they would do their job right? And that's why the team is so successful. In in a sense, that's what Daniel is modeling for us here. Even though Daniel is confused about the details of this vision, Daniel wants to go and do his job, trusting, this is so important, that God is going to do his job. And so Daniel goes back and serves this awful King Belshazzar. He does it faithfully. We also know he does it courageously. And we know this because Daniel chapter 5 actually comes nine years after Daniel chapter 8. The vision happens, and then nine years later comes Daniel chapter 5. And in Daniel 5, if you remember, the king desecrates uh, the, 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 uh, the items of the temple, um, and, and God writes on the wall, and Daniel is the only one who can come in 
and will tell him God's word and tell the judgment that is coming, that he is going to die, that his kingdom is going to end. And the reason why Daniel can be courageous in doing his job is because he knows how the story ends. He knows there will be suffering, but he knows in the end, God will win. Let me end with this. I I told you in the beginning that we would describe these weekly young life clubs as controlled chaos because from outside perspective, it looked very uh, random, very chaotic, maybe even very purposeless. But from an insider's perspective, from a leader's perspective, we had things controlled to a certain extent, but everything had a central purpose. And the central purpose of all these things we were doing, even duct taping kids to the wall, the central purpose was to show kids the love of Jesus, the joy of Jesus, and tell them the gospel of Jesus. We could tell them about the most chaotic event in the history of the world, the day that God in the flesh died on a cross. Can you imagine, can you imagine the chaos of the cross? Jesus arrested in a garden in the middle of the night, taken away before Jewish leaders who cannot even get their false accusations to agree with one another, shipped off to Pilate where he is interviewed and declared innocent and yet sent away to be mocked, to be beaten, to be spat upon, brought back, put before the people of God, told that he is innocent, and yet the own people, his own people said, crucify him, send him away, let him die. Can you imagine the chaos of the cross, bloodied Jesus stumbling up Calvary, raised up, with the wails of dying sinners, nails plunged through his wrists and through his feet, darkness coming over the land, the earth shaking, the curtain being torn in two. Can you imagine the chaos of the cross? And yet we know that this is a controlled chaos. Jesus tells us many times, many, many, many times, that he must go and suffer. Luke 24, 46 is one. When he says to the disciples, thus it is written, meaning it is prophesied, it is promised, it is planned out by God. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See, at the cross, we see a display of God's justice poured out on our chaos. You see, our our sad chaos, our, our miserable chaos is because of our sin. And yet at the cross, Christ takes on our sin and the judgment for our sin so that we can experience the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. I'm not sure what chaos you are going through right now. Some of you I probably know, but many of you I do not. I'm sure there's chaos somewhere in your life that's overwhelming. From Daniel 8, we can know this, that it is a controlled chaos. Controlled chaos is not only the world we experience. Controlled chaos is the hope of our salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, We need your help. The chaos of the world makes us anxious, makes us fearful. We're so thankful that we can come to a God who is in control of the chaos. 
It doesn't answer all our questions. We're still confused about many things, why certain things happen. We know that we do not know all the answers, but we are thankful that we know a God who is in control of all things, even sad things, because you promise us in the end that you will win and that we will be with you as your people. God, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of the chaos of the cross. Jesus saying to his apostles that his body is going to be broken, his blood is going to be spilled. Lord, pray that we would look to your supper, that we would receive it as a nourishment of your grace, Lord God, so that in the midst of the chaos that we're going through right now, God, we can be reminded that nothing is outside of your control and even the most worst chaotic thing in human history, the cross, you used for the ultimate good of saving our souls. Encourage us with that reminder. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.